If you've been working for data for some time, you're familiar with the concept of a schema. It enables you to define the structures and the types of data that you'll store in the database. Now with document databases, there's also a concept of going schemaless. Developers everywhere have embraced the document database for this reason, but in many cases, it's for the wrong reasons. It's almost too easy to store arbitrary data whether it be from JSON or XML, storing it in a document database is seamless and easy. But if you expect to filter, modify, and retrieve that data efficiently, you may be in for some surprises. On today's show, John Page, a distinguished engineer at MongoDB, is gonna talk about the myth of going schemaless. Stay tuned. Hey, it's GDC, the Game Developers Conference. It's coming to San Francisco March 21st through the 25th, and MongoDB is taking part. There'll be a MongoDB booth. The MongoDB podcast will be on site. Swing by the booth and mention the word podcast to receive a special gift. The Game Developers Conference brings the game development community together to exchange ideas, solve problems, and shape the future of the industry across five days of education, inspiration, and networking. To get more information, visit gdconf.com. And remember to swing by the MongoDB booth, mention the word podcast to receive a special gift. Hope to see you there. Well, John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be here. Second time I've done a podcast with you. First full one, though. That's right. We did something at uh, Dot .local in London, right? Yeah, you, you kind of colored me for a few comments on the show, I think. <laughs> I'm good for that. Well, awesome. It's great to get you back, and um, we can kind of take our time with this one. Um, we're going to talk a lot about schema and the, the myths associated with MongoDB being a schemaless database. But before we get there, John, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Let folks know who you are and what you do. So these days, I, I like to think of myself as a social media influencer, but that's probably pushing it a little bit. So I've, I've done a bunch of things at MongoDB over the years. I've been with MongoDB for like eight and a half years, and I've done um, pre-sales, which is really you know telling people about MongoDB and getting them enthusiastic about it. I've done professional services, which is telling people about MongoDB and getting them enthusiastic about it. Uh, and now I'm in developer relations, where guess what? Yeah, my job is to tell people about MongoDB and try and get them enthusiastic about it. The only thing that's kind of changed through those, I guess, has been the channels. You know, when you think of pre-sales, it's, it's going out to see somebody in a pre-sales capacity who might be curious. Uh, professional services, they're already using it, but they might not, not know enough to, to be really loving it. And so it's helping that. And now, now I'm trying to reach a much broader audience by kind of, you know, building things with MongoDB and telling people about what I'm doing. And then, you know, I'm trying to go out to, to social media and things like that. So mostly I, I, I build stuff, uh, particularly with kind of new features and, and potentially lesser used features. And I, I just try and spread the knowledge. Learning and teaching every day. That's my motto. Learn something and teach something every day. Oh, that's a great motto. I love that. So you've done a lot at MongoDB and you always seem to be working on these really cool projects. And um, I'm curious, where do you get your ideas for, for projects? And maybe talk a little bit about some of the recent ones that you've done. Oh, that's, a, that's a good question. So firstly, my first love, I think, is education. 
is like I want I want people to know things. I love learning things myself, and I want to teach things. So I follow a fair bit of um, kind of educational tech and what's going on there. And I also have an interest both through myself and, and through my daughters in in kind of nature and wildlife and things like that. So I'm always looking for educational and for for wildlife things to do. And we have dogs and fish as well. We're we're that kind of outdoorsy family. So. I guess I, I've had quite a few ideas come to me over the years, possibly when I'm just kind of kicking back and watching TV. And I think, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had X or we had Y? So, you know, my 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 kind of major passion is actually nothing to do with databases. I, uh, I have uh, a robot tank, which I built. So you imagine this thing. It's about... Um, six inches, 15 centimeters long. And on the front of it, right down at the ground, is a, is a, a camera, but, but a very kind of close-up camera. And so by driving this thing around the garden and projecting it onto a big screen, it's like shrinking myself to being like, you know, half an inch tall. I, I, you know, I get to see bugs walking past and all the details of them, like, you know, I was driving around and a lion walked past on a safari. So that's kind of my, that's my real kind of, you know, I won't say side hustle because it's never intended to make money, but it's kind of the passion project. And then that, building that over the last six years has led me to all kinds of knowledge about wireless protocols and about uh, robotics and about, you know, a lot more mechanical stuff than I used to do. Um, So that led me a a long way into the the world of kind of electronics and mechanics and and things because at heart, I'm a, a software person or by career, I'm a software person. Um, so I built that uh, during the pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we had lockdown here, so um, I'd also I'd been cycling, and then you know the weather got really bad, and I built myself uh, like a smart trainer crossed with a games controller. So I wanted to be able to uh, to cycle, but I didn't. I'm not I'm not a competitive person. It's something I think about my upbringing. Um, that I'm I'm really not inherently competitive. I I actually I, I'm sure this will put off many of your listeners. I detest sport. You know, I really, uh, or, well, that's, I, I have done a little bit of motorsport, but mostly I cannot be bothered with sport. And which is ironic living in Scotland where football is everything. And in this house, it's referred to as the F word. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I was cycling, but my, you know, my idea of cycling isn't like, how fast can I do this? It's, hey, what, you know, can I cycle through the countryside? And what animals can I see? And, you know, how can I just enjoy it? And my bike was, you know, very much a sort of, you know, sit up, very straight, look around kind of thing. It was not, crouch down over the handlebars so then when you look at how do you how do you adapt that to uh to doing it indoors and you look at things like swift and peloton and they're all about get your head down how fast can you go 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 and it's like no i don't want to do that i want to i want to explore so i ended up building um like a, a bike trainer very like the sort of peloton thing but where you could steer you could pedal and also it would change the resistance on the rear wheel, but all driven by a computer game. So I could cycle around computer games, um, initially sort of driving games. So I'd pick like, things with big open worlds, but you could even pick kind of games that are set in different things like Red Dead Redemption, which is in the Wild West. Instead of riding a horse, you just cycle around it and uh, uh, Skyrim and things like that. So, you know, some of these ideas come to me, some are just adaptations. And of course, those two things, that, that little mini buggy that drives around the garden, and the cycling will play together. So now I can shrink myself to an inch tall and cycle around my garden for an hour. <laughs> you know, it's a, and it's actually, it's, a, it's, you know, people say to you, well, why not use VR? And it's like, well, I, I could use VR, but actually it's just nicer having a big projection screen in front of me. 
And really, isn't reality so much more interesting than virtual reality? Well, there, there's a bit of both. So yeah, the cycling around the garden and the reality stuff, I, I absolutely love that. But even playing the games, it's like I'm choosing games that have scenery. You know, so I'll be cycling around the Pacific Northwest and a herd of deer will walk out on the road. And it's, uh, you know yourself, because you, you kind of saw this, it's surprisingly realistic in places. Yeah. And then um, then we have MongoDB projects. Uh, so yeah, I'm always looking for, for interesting things to do you know, with the product. And especially if I can, if I can include the product in what I'm doing, hey, I can do it in work hours. It's a, you know, that's work. No matter how much fun it is, it's work. So um, we recently had a thing in the UK where the cost of domestic fuel in the UK is capped by the government. So they have a, they have a limit on how much the energy companies can charge for electricity and gas. And those are normally, you know, pretty high the you know the, the companies will generally do you a fixed price deal which is less than the the maximum but all over the world the price of fuel is rocketing and this was was killing off energy companies in the UK and so the government every 6 months reviews that and at the last review they put it up by 54% you know so so what's actually literally happening is that people's bills for April are 54% higher than they were for March and that's that's heartbreaking for many now. I'm I'm fortunate. I can I can manage that. But it made me take a step back and look at my own bills and think, you know, those are high. Those are, you know, we're we're being flagrant with energy. And as somebody who kind of cares a little bit about the world and the environment, I probably shouldn't do that. And so I kind of looked through I, I sit in a room full of educational tech that I've bought over the years to partly to try and encourage my own kids to do things, partly to learn it. Uh, partly because I've done stuff with kind of neighborhood groups and things. And I thought, how can I use all these bits and pieces to to measure and manage my own energy usage? And so I, I did that. I set out, first I built something which kind of read my electricity meters and it, it, it photographs them, it OCRs that information, it puts it into MongoDB and it draws nice graphs and charts. And then I blogged about it. And then having done that, I said, right, well, probably the biggest cost is heating because Scotland is not a warm country. And so I grabbed a bunch of uh, what are called BBC Microbits, which are little kind of standalone computers with a, like a five by five pixel screen and a couple of buttons that you can program. And they're just for teaching the, the principles of programming. But they have a thermometer built in and they have Bluetooth built in. So I, I plugged one in and half a dozen rooms in my house and built something to gather the temperatures and graph and monitor all of that. And then something to check if those temperatures were above or below what I would consider a reasonable temperature. And hey, presto, my house is way too warm. So went, turned things down. And just as of this morning, I checked. And to my absolute astonishment, I'm saving myself 150 pounds, like $200 a month already. Wow. Which is is mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't stopped. Well, I've started on electricity, but I'm still working on cutting that. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. I'm curious, though, were you always this inquisitive? Did you always have this curious mind? Oh, curious can mean a couple of different things there. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure people refer to me as a curious child. But no, I've, I've always had a kind of a love of learning. I've always been a, like a reader. I was having this conversation recently with my wife that as a, as a sort of young teen or even preteen, I would, I would be found in, in the library. I'd literally be in the paper library reading books and not 
I'd read fiction, but I'd read lots and lots of non-fiction as well. You know, for those listening to this, wondering what I'm talking about here, I'm a, I'm of an age before the internet, and therefore, you know, if you wanted to learn stuff, you you went to the library and you just grabbed a book off the shelf and learned a new topic. Back in the days when Wikipedia was twelve feet long. <laughs> So, and I used to, I used to read lots of periodicals. So I'd say I've always been curious. I've always been interested in things. I've always wanted to know how they work. I've also, you know, since my very, very youngest memories, I, I wanted to be variously an inventor, a toy maker, or a magician. You know, those are where, where I saw being a magician as, as a, you know, a subset of inventor because you know, tricks are things you create. So I kind of fell into computer science by accident. I did. I did train as a geologist, but um, that's only because I wanted to understand computing. Like from the point of first, I have to find silicon, then I can work for the way up from there. Yeah, and so so out of university, where do you find yourself in terms of employment? So I in my in my last year of university, I was looking around on Usenet, which again, for those who've been around a very long time, it's a uh, Trying to think what the equivalent. What would you say the equivalent of Usenet is these days? It's a kind of it's a kind of combination of of like Reddit and Stack Overflow and yeah, Reddit actually is probably the closest thing. But this thing was was absolutely text only. And I looked on uh, on the Scott.jobs channel and there was an advert there. You know, wanted Unix uh, Unix GUI programmer for up and coming intelligence company. Now, this was 1995, and you know, I was like, intelligence? No idea what they really mean by that, but I'll go along. And so uh, that was my, my like first and only job interview, um, and I got the job. And it was working for a company called Memex, who were a Scottish company who'd been around for 20 years at that point. And amazingly, they were very like MongoDB. They were a document database company. Um, who built their own database, you know, on top of, at that point, about 14 different Unix platforms, um, along with, um, as it was very much closed source. And so they had very few, if any, people using it apart from the U.S. military. The U.S. military used it as, a, as an underlying development tool, but they built their own GUIs on top of it as well, both kind of generic GUIs like MongoDB Compass and also specific line of business communities for intelligent um, line of business applications for intelligence management. So that's basically the, the story behind intelligence is somebody tells you something and then you have to assess, do I trust this person? Does this person say that this is reliable intelligence? Because you could have somebody that, that is very trustworthy, but they say, I heard this third hand. And then a third category is, how much risk is there to this person or other people if this gets in the wrong hands? Which is more than just security. It's like it's like safety risk assessment. And so you get this raw intelligence and then you build from that a kind of much more structure. So that's that's almost an unstructured thing. It's a bunch of text. You know, it's a it's literally a text report. And then from that you manually build structured information. So if it mentions a person, you create a record for that person or you link it to that person. So you're building up from your unstructured intelligence, you're building up this kind of structured model of intelligence as well. And then the third part is analyzing that structured intelligence and going, hey, you know, we've now had 10 different reports about this guy. You know, that's probably something. And so we'll we'll synthesize an intelligence report, which basically says, we think this person's a problem. This is why, this is the evidence, and this is what we need to do to ameliorate that problem. Uh, so I did, I did that. And in that company, 
um, I went from being um, like a Unix GUI developer and then I worked on our first web front end. And at that point, you know, we were writing a web front end and we thought we're probably going to need a framework for this. So, we, you know, it starts from the ground up and we were writing web front end and back end in C++ because, you know, JavaScript didn't exist at this point, just to give you an idea of how far back we're going. Um, but also we didn't want to have a server that had to spin up all the time. So we had a persistent server in C++ and then a tiny little binary in C that called it to get the next page and things like that. And we built it as, a, as an extensible framework because even back then we understood those concepts. And then I moved into Windows and I built Windows GUIs, text mining tools, graphical text mining tools. My boss at the time was super encouraging of, you know, try and do some cool blue sky stuff, you know, because we want, we want to be, you know, the amazing, you know, software of the year 2000, not just straight old database software. And I did that for 18 years. Uh, ultimately ended up, we sold that company to SaaS. Um, I was a director in SaaS and MongoDB then headhunted me to come and do professional service, uh, to do resales for them. But yeah, loads of time. And, and obviously, you know, all through that was document databases, but also RDBMS and moving data from and between RDBMS and document databases. Yeah. And primarily C, C++. Uh, well, no, from a development perspective there, it was C, C++, uh, Visual Basic, C Sharp, Perl, PHP, bunch of different technologies. You know, 18 years is a long time. You get to you get to get reasonably good at a bunch of things. Uh, data, I did a lot of data transformation laterally. Uh, I worked extensively with the Middle Eastern government to bring a bunch of systems up to and including the immigration system all under one searchable unified system and that was all Perl so ended up I was doing masses of, of Perl data manipulation yeah so you end up at MongoDB in pre-sales you've eventually gone through professional services and now in developer relations what's your favorite role um I, I'd like to claim that all three are really the same role. It's just as the company evolved, the person paying me to do it changed. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I started in in pre-sales, pre-sales people did a little bit of professional services, and they also went out and did conferences, and they also spoke about MongoDB. In professional services, the customer was paying, which was nice, um, and the audience size would be smaller, but really it would still be to go out and talk to people about what their problems were and educate them. I have to say that, you know, my current role is nice because it's less structured. It's There's more freedom in my current role to do what I wanted. In, in pre-sales, the customers were chosen for me. In professional services, the customers were chosen for me. Whereas in my current role, I, I just have a lot more influence over what I do and what I work on. I think it gives me the ability to, to just provide more value to MongoDB and more value to our customers because I can target a, a broader base. And maybe do the slightly unusual. Well, yes, definitely. Um, and I see that. And so coming to the the topic that we wanted to discuss today, uh, you've written a great article and it's about schema lists. You want to give an overview of the article? Yeah. So th there's a notion, uh, there's a concept uh, effectively of schema list databases. And people talk about schema list databases as being some kind of, you know, polar opposite to our traditional, I don't know, schema-full relational databases. And I, I think they're used, or they tend to be used for different use cases. But MongoDB 
um, isn't necessarily schemaless. And I, I'd argue that you know there are very few true cases where a database, in the sense of a set of data, is schemaless. How much schema and how that schema is enforced by the underlying storage technology is a different question. So you know you can have technologies that insist that before you give it any data, you tell it in great detail what that data will look like. You can have technologies which say, you know, just just give me your poor and hungry, sorry, give me your data and you know, I will absorb it and then you know we'll deal with it later. Um, and MongoDB as a technology will do either. You know, we can we can strictly enforce a bunch of guidelines up front, or we can let you put some data in and then work out some guidelines, or we can trust you just to you know manage at the client end what your data looks like. The important thing is that you know if your data truly has no schema, you know, you know hypothetically every piece of data in your database could have a different set of fields. It's not going to be really very usable, and so you have to accept that there's at least some schema, and and think about you know think about you know applying schema to what you're doing or you know if you're thinking of your mongodb use case as well my data has a schema therefore i shouldn't use mongodb you're probably missing some of the the point yeah as i think about it schema is really uh, a definition of the types and structure of data that lives in the database and you mentioned it from a relational database perspective, a legacy relational database technology will uh, will force you to define the types and structures prior to storing the data. And as you mentioned, MongoDB doesn't do that. There are few use cases that I can think of. I- I'm not even sure I can think of one where, I mean, unless you've got a, an application that is accepting data and immediately storing it without concern for the the key value pairs and the structure of the data, I can't imagine that would be, well, number one, secure, but number two, uh, the reporting. What are you doing with this data if you don't truly understand what types and structure the data is? So I'm going to ask you, I mean, do, can you think of a an application where schema really doesn't matter? I think where schema doesn't matter, yes and no. So, you know, when we talk about MongoDB, we talk about having dynamic schema, which effectively says, if you want, we'll accept anything you give to us. And there are, there are three use cases for that, three places where you may not want to rigidly tell it up from what your data is. The first one is just to do with evolution of software. You know, if, we, if I have version one of my software and then I want to have version two of my software, which has slightly different schema, yeah, you know, having a database which is flexible in terms of schema means I can store the two at the same time. The next case is the one that really is where people, you know, are using MongoDB in a, a schemaless matter and its manner. And it's it's not entirely wrong, but it's it's only very small part of what you could do. So imagine you're an organization that has predefined objects that you pass around your organization for different bits of software. So somewhere along the line, a data architect has defined an XML or a JSON model to describe uh, a customer or a trade or, or something like that. And that definition is sort of a schema in its own right. It may be defined at your organization level. It may be something that's even defined beyond your organization. But it's not something that you as an application developer have direct influence on what happens you know if if 
one day you're getting things from a downstream system that looked like this, and then the next day it changes. The nice thing about MongoDB is you can say, look, just take this downstream data, which actually I, I don't really know what's in it, and store it in a way that lets me access individual parts. Now, I'll almost certainly want to add some metadata to that to say, where did it come from and when did it come from there? And that metadata in MongoDB is definitely going to be a schema. But we can have a sort of partial schema where we say, okay, I must have uh, this field, this field, and this field. So I understand where this data came from and you know what date I got it and what date I should delete it. Um, but the rest of it could be just any set of fields. And it may be that when that data comes in as just any set of fields, the correct answer is, well, we'll store it as a kind of binary blob. You know, If the data comes in in XML, it may not be worth converting to JSON. It may be worth just storing as a blob of XML or a string. Or it may be that you know, we do want to be able to do kind of ad hoc queries against it. And so we will store that arbitrary data. And at some point in the future, somebody may say, look, I know that these documents have this field. And so I'm going to go and query against that. So there is this concept of storing objects as a payload. Um, and the nice thing about MongoDB is that we can do that slightly better than simply storing them as a, as a sort of opaque blob of data or as a string. We can store them with some structure. So the article we're talking about is titled Debunking the Myth of Going Schemaless. It's, uh, it's on the new stack at thenewstack.io. I'll include links in the show notes if you want to check out that article. So I, I like what you said about the metadata, and that's where I think the value of MongoDB comes in. Regardless of the, the bulk of the data that you're storing, you have the ability to have this kind of flexible framework for storing key value pairs in MongoDB. And I mean, we have said as a company, MongoDB is schemaless. We've used that language. Uh, do you see, you know, challenges around the the kind of the dichotomy that we're we're promoting MongoDB as a schemaless database? And then in the same sentence, it's kind of like this Heisenberg experiment. I mean, the schema exists, maybe not until you look at it. Do you see challenges around that from a language perspective? I think there's a little bit of overloading of the term schemaless, which causes us some problems there. So the first part of that is that MongoDB, as an underlying database technology, has flexible schema. You do not need to define the schema upfront, um, which some people refer will refer to as schemaless. If the database is not enforcing a schema, and I can put, I can therefore put data into it with no schema, and therefore I can conceivably create a completely schemaless database. But a schemaless database is like a, you know, a paperless toilet. It's entirely possible, but not entirely desirable. <laughs> so, you know, we do have this thing where we've we've used the term schemaless to describe the underlying database, but we actually stopped using that officially quite some time ago. That said, the world also uses the term schemaless database for better or for worse, again, to refer to a database that may or may not have an available schema and may or may not enforce a schema. And we live in a world where when somebody searches for schemaless database, we'd very much like them to look at us. Maybe they are one of those few use cases who, for some reason or other, want a mostly schemaless database. You know, maybe they do have just a lot of arbitrary um, JSON or similar data plus a few metadata fields. So, you know, we still have information that says, you know, MongoDB is a schemaless database. I think you know, the language I like to use, the way I like to talk about MongoDB is MongoDB is a document database. And that 
that's a, a very orthogonal concept to being a schemaless database. So a da document database can be schemaless, and a schemaless database could be not a document. I mentioned that the previous company I worked for was a document database. It also had a very rigidly enforced schema. You know, it was very like MongoDB, but you had to tell it up front what those documents were going to be and what those key and value pairs were going to be. MongoDB lets you do that. MongoDB will let you say, these are the keys, these are the values, these are the ranges for these values, these are the codependencies. This value must never be more than three of this. It can, it can do all of those things, whether you choose to use them or not. But that's a different concept to MongoDB being a document database. Um, as a document database being something that you can use to build very efficient schemas for transaction processing. I think schema on read might actually be a better phrase. I mean, it, it, the schema does exist uh, once the data is stored. Well, the schema also exists in your, um, in your client side. I mean, you, you can't, regardless of how much schema is enforced or, or not enforced by your database, if your client application just sends arbitrary data to the database you know, and you have a schema, you're going to get things rejected. There's no point in having a schema on the server side and then not having a schema understood and enforced on the client end because you're just going to get errors. So ultimately, pretty much all software is going to have a schema. It's going to have layers of objects and code that define these are the fields that my, my application understands. And so schema on read is an interesting concept. Schema on read is this is almost an idea of we just throw arbitrary things in the database because they come from some downstream system, and then we have to figure that out at read time. And that's a that's a really inefficient, if useful, way of doing it. So that's the, the data lake world where it's like, look, we're going to store this data just now as cheaply as possible, both in terms of processing and in terms of storage. And if we ever need to use it, well, we'll deal with figuring out what it is then. Whereas I think that's possible with MongoDB, but MongoDB is more about the, the, the primary responsibility for schema enforcement is the application. At the database end, we'll make that optional for you. Because to be honest, if, we, if the database doesn't enforce the schema for you, it gives you more flexibility in your application. For example, you can say, you know, here are the five fields that I need, but whatever is in this field could be an object of any type. So I, I'm not sure I agree with schema on read. I think it's, it's, it's devolving the majority of the schema responsibility to the client application. And then as a corollary to that, you need to keep control of that. So if you have one application using your data, and ideally that's got, you know, one class, one library, one bit of code that interacts with the database and, and crystallizes that schema, that's great. If, on the other hand, I'm allowing lots of different people to access my data, then maybe I do need to turn on kind of schema enforcement. Maybe I need to make MongoDB less schemaless because I'm allowing many, many people to access it. But we are giving that flexibility. Yeah, and I love that flexibility. It, it comes down to you know, you can make decisions about the schemaless or schema full nature of your application based on the the use case and maybe the number of users and the disparity of the use cases that you understand about your application. But I want to go back and I want to touch on, you know, we've we've talked about the free for all nature. I can just write an application that dumps the data to MongoDB. Maybe I include some structured metadata. But what about the other end? Now you mentioned that we do we do make available uh, schema enforcement. What does that look like from a technology perspective in MongoDB? So um, 
MongoDB schema enforcement. I, I recently had cause to do kind of more work with this than than I expected to. So it's it's a newish topic for me. Um, I was never convinced as to the value of schema enforcement. You know, on the basis that most of the time there's one application and a, a limited amount of code hitting it. So MongoDB can set up uh, what we call document validation. So we can basically set up a rule in the server that says every time a new version of this document or a, a new document is given to the database, and at its simplest, it's, it must match this query. So um, it uses the same kind of query language as everything else in MongoDB, but I could do something like that says something like every document that's added to the person collection must have a date of birth field that falls between this and this. So I'm basically saying, you know, it must have a, a date of birth field and it must be a date between these two ranges, which then makes that a mandatory field and it makes it a type date and it means it falls in here. And I can also just explicitly say this field must be a date or this field must be one of these values or you know, this, this, I can do the things with arrays. I can say, you know, this, this array must have no more than five things in it. So it's actually incredibly powerful. And it, it spills out into the whole aggregation expression language as well, which is a, is a Turing complete language. So I can then go beyond that and do things like, you know, this field must be less than this one plus this one, which, you know, you can do in SQL with, with a where clause, but I'm not aware of any other like NoSQL technology that gives you that capability. Um, and in my own case, uh, I was actually creating, I wanted records that I could allow a developer to edit, but only edit certain fields in. And MongoDB security says, if you can edit a record, you can edit the whole record. So I ended up building a, a document validator that just basically said, right, this field, this field, this field, and this field, if you hash them together with this secret value, then they must equal this field, which allowed me to create records and sets of fields that a developer couldn't change. A developer can change anything else, but if they change any one of those fields, then that, that computation is not going to work anymore. So it goes all the way from you know the simplest thing to say, right, it must have these fields, or it must have these fields of these types, up to you know, any amount of business logic applied to the, the things you're putting in the database. But then we get ourselves into the same kind of quandary where we dealt with this in the relational world, where the schema now lives separate from the the code that manipulates the data itself, right? So how does how does a developer uh, implement schema enforcement, and what happens when a document fails to meet the criteria? I, I think in the general case, server side schema enforcement is not a good thing to do. It's there. It's possible. And, you know, if you're really uncomfortable with the idea that the schema enforcement lives in your application code, then you can enforce it. It's only really of use where you do not have control over developers to your database. You know, in a, in a good world, you have one access layer for the data, certainly one right access layer for the data. Reading isn't really an issue, but you have one right access layer, whether that's some kind of uh, API, microservice, class library, whatever it is, and that's how you interact with the data. And in a perfect world, you've got a nice business data access layer that actually understands even versions of your schema. So, you know, when I do get payment details, 
if it's an old payment details record, it will return that in one form. If it's a new payment details record, it will still work, and I don't have to upgrade things. So the the real, you know, really, I would say that schema enforcement isn't the database's job. It should be done in the client end code. But there are always exceptions to that rule. And the exceptions are, you know, where you have a large number of development teams hitting the data, potentially when you're putting out new versions of code and you've got a risk that, you know, perhaps uh, something isn't doing what it's supposed to do. So, you know, as part of your testing cycle, you might even turn on uh, schema enforcement just as part of testing. So you don't run it in live, but you do run it in, in pre-production to make sure everything is running the way you expect. Um, or in my particular case, uh, as a very unusual use case where I, I wanted my end users to be MongoDB developers because I was de- building a sort of educational experience for, for MongoDB developers. And so I wanted them to be able to use a Mongo shell or compass and do whatever they liked whilst still having certain constraints enforced upon them. But, you know, they, they were, it was genuinely, a, I, I want to constrain people who are allowed to use any programming technique they like. Now, I cut my teeth in an environment where separation of duties was very enforced, I'll say. You know, in, in the world of finance, uh, there were towers and really strict lines between responsibilities. And one of the arguments that I heard early on was that schema should be the responsibility of the database administrator. What do you say to, to folks coming from the relational world, from the, the legacy relational world to MongoDB that that say, well, you're going to end up with a Wild West if you've got developers con- controlling what the database looks like from a structure perspective? I think with that one, firstly, the, the, you know, the origins of the DBA and the schema design and the idea that a DBA or architect or somebody would, would determine the schema and then the schema would be given to the developers to build against. So I think that notion originates from a world where, you know, it's it's the mid to late 1970s and somebody has come up with the great idea that, you know, in any given organization, there should be one and only one copy of the data. There will be one database and that's it. And no data point will be duplicated because that way, you know, there's never any ambiguity if we only have one version of a fact. And not only that, but, you know, we can't save money on the storage if we only have one version of a fact. And, uh, you know, we can't trust developers to read and write files because, you know, they won't follow these rules. And so, you know, the birth of the relational database. And so if you have one database for an organization, then the first rule is that the design of that database must not really be geared to any particular application. It must be entirely generic and driven by the domain of the data. We go through, you know, first, second, third, and sixth normal form, taking this data and basically saying, look, how do we organize this in a way that isn't geared up to any particular access pattern, mode, or use case? And that's carried over. That's even still done today, even though, you know, nowadays, the idea that any organization would have, yeah, we have one database and every one of our applications forever will run on it. Nowadays, when we have an application, our first thought is, hmm, so I'll need a database for this then. Um, And databases in the real world are very much tailored towards the applications they run on. So those lovely architect designed, perfect normalized schemas uh, don't survive first contact with the enemy and you find you know string fields with comma separated text in them and you find people doing all sorts of things and you'll find databases that have a table that says you know, customer number one, customer number two, customer number three, customer cell one, it all 
kind of design compromises that have been made because the original perfect design didn't work when it came to be developed. So I think nowadays there are there are people working in development who have a better understanding of you know what that data structure needs to look like. I, I'm not saying it's every developer. There are developers who who expect to just work in a very rigid framework. But I think there are a lot of developers now who have many of the kind of data design skills needed to actually work out, you know, what should my backend schema look like? And I think we we as a company encourage that idea that getting the perfect schema needs to be a, a top-down process. You know, we need to understand both the non-functional requirements, the data requirements, the performance requirements, um, but also it needs to be driven by the user interface requirements. If the if the principal requirement 90% of the time is to retrieve a data form that looks like X, then let's make sure that the back end supports doing that efficiently. I like that. Now we're coming up on time, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the topic of mobile and our Realm mobile database. Do you work much with um, our Realm mobile solution? I, I have done in the past. So I worked with the Realm mobile database shortly after MongoDB acquired it. Um, and I understand a lot of the concepts behind it, but I really haven't done much with it recently. Yeah. So there's kind of this dichotomy, uh, the Realm Mobile database, there are so many things in common between the MongoDB server-based database and and the concepts around the, the Realm Mobile database. But one glaring difference is in that the Realm Mobile database does require that you that you strictly enforce a schema. You need to create the uh, the types and structure prior to to writing data to the database. Uh, and I was curious if you had thoughts on that. And actually, I mean, I know you've worked a little bit with it, but what are your thoughts on on the differences between Realm Mobile and and MongoDB? That was one of the first questions I asked when I, I kind of started learning about Realm. Was you know it, it was sort of there but not there and. I think it's to do with the expectations of mobile developers and very much the expectations of mobile libraries and mobile projects. So in the in the sort of web world, people work with JavaScript, which is a very, you know, happy, dynamic language which will readily accept different data shapes. And the same applies in a lot of server technologies. In the mobile world, things initially were all quite rigid. I mean, mobile phones, ultimately, um, interestingly, no, mobile phones remind me of the development work I did in the late 1990s. I was writing Windows desktop applications and the and, and some Linux desktop applications. And the, the whole mobile programming stack has so much in common with that, from how the GUIs work to how the code works. But one thing that you were always thinking about when you were writing on Windows or when you were writing on Linux was how is my memory usage? How can I be efficient about this? You know, how can I limit my resource usage? And that's compounded from mobile applications by battery usage. So even though mobile applications have much more storage than they used to have and much more RAM and much faster CPUs, there's still a finite amount of battery to play with on a mobile device. And that then influences the software stack and how things work. And of course, it's evolved from devices that had very little memory, relatively speaking, very slow CPUs, relatively speaking, and very, very little battery. And Realm itself has come through that whole cycle because it's not a new product by any means. So Realm is Realm is designed for efficiency. Fine, that makes sense. 
but also all of the other libraries in mobile technologies are designed for efficiency. And so none of them are really designed to work with dynamic data structures. If I give you an example, lots of the GUI components, um, rather than you sort of have to explicitly update a GUI component and say, you know, add this to my list, add this to my list, add this to my list, the components you see on the screen are bound to underlying components so that as those underlying components change, then the GUI changes. So as a developer, you just need to add something to a list or an array and, and it updates in the GUI. But none of them are designed around the idea of dynamic. So, you know, the idea that you can add something to a list, that's fine. But if you were to um, add a new field to an object, none of the GUIs on mobile technologies have any idea what to do with that. So you know, one of the reasons why Realm is the way it is and, and why at this point we've not made it more dynamic, more MongoDB-like, more flexible, is simply because mobile components wouldn't understand what to do with that, and mobile developers, therefore, really have not a great deal of use for that. One of the first things I did when I got my hands on Realm was build a tiny little sort of micro-Mongo library on it that had collections and documents and databases and behaved like MongoDB on the device. And behind the scenes used Realm as a transport protocol to move data to and from the server. So I could literally write some mobile code that looked and, and smelt like MongoDB code. You know, as a, as a MongoDB developer, it'd be great. But I, I kind of just stopped after a, a sort of POC of that project because it was like, even if I had the MongoDB driver API on the mobile device, in most use cases, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's like the even in the server world early on, the physical constraints of the of the servers drove the constraints of the virtual of the database itself. And it sounds like we're still in that space with uh, with mobile. Okay, so uh, so it sounds like the constraints on the device drive the the flexibility or the degree to which we can be flexible in the database. And um, I do want to ask about. You know there are some some resource advantages, some advantages in the way that we we deal with resources when we constrain. Do you want to talk about the uh, the efficiencies or lack thereof associated with uh, the schemaless design with MongoDB? So the the thing about a schemaless design. So if we're talking about you know not ha having a lot of fields that aren't kind of particularly defined up front and. You know, what you kind of d defined as schema on read, as in, you know, we, you know, we, we've got this data, we've stored it, but then we, you know, we need to, we can't optimize for anything we do. There really is no optimization you can do for a, a schemaless design. You know, if you don't know how you're going to use your data, you can't even build kind of viable indexes for it. And you're really ultimately building a key value store where you're saying, look, I'm going to retrieve by this single dimension and uh, you're going to be back a, a big blob of something. Otherwise, there's very little I can do. I think the the point I'd like to make is that that concept of of schemaless is almost completely at odds with the idea of a document database, which is a very very structured concept. You know, MongoDB MongoDB has schemaless as a capability, but it's also a document database, and a document database, dare I say, correctly used, although that's that's very much an opinion, is a highly structured thing. Um, in the same way that you know, an object-oriented language is is a is a structured thing. The advantage of document databases is that you can design 
kind of much richer server-side objects which co-locate data, which explicitly join data, which make it faster and more efficient to retrieve it because I don't need to join things together. It make it makes it easier to build a distributed system because now you know the things I need to update are all on the same server. I can do an atomic change to, to change one thing. I ideally don't need to worry about using ACID transactions. I can do ACID transactions or multi-document ACID transactions in MongoDB. But if I do that, then I've got multiple steps to my modification. I have to tell the server, right, okay, I'm going to start. And then I have to change one thing. And then I have to change another thing. And then I have to say, or, or any number of things. And then I have to say to the server, hey, I've finished. And between that first thing being changed and me finishing, all of those things are in a kind of indeterminate state. You know, as soon as I change something inside a transaction, nobody else can really rely on its value. They can't change it. Um, even reading it is questionable because it's it's in a state of it's neither happened nor hasn't happened. You know, very much transactions result in, I think you said this earlier, Schrodinger's records. And the length of time that they're in that indeterminate state and therefore effectively locked for anything else to use is is huge in computing terms. So any any software system which relies on me changing multiple things and not part as a single atomic send to the server, you know, do this now. And doubly so if those things are over a network, because you know, compared to in-memory time, network time is forever. That whole thing causes contention. Um, let me give you a, a great example. Let's say I want to rip through my database, and for the sake of argument, I want to just set a new field to five. And I've got a million records. So I start and I kick it off and it's just setting this new field to five for whatever reason. I'm basically locking my whole database. As I ripple through the database, now nobody else can update that database until I complete my task or roll it back because they're all relying on my, you know, my number five change being there. And that can cause enormous contention and locking. And it's one of the, the fundamental problems with kind of traditional relational databases in terms of, of scale. You know, why do relational databases have problems with scale? One, trying to get them across multiple machines, but two, transactions are, are transactions are fundamentally evil. They're necessary evil in places, but they're fundamentally evil. So a document database can give you a much better chance of co-locating all the data you might need to change together so that a single operation can come in, grab the record, lock it, change it, unlock it, and that's microseconds, and it's not got any contention with anyone else. So, you know, you've got schemaless on one side, and people think of document databases being, you know, meaning the same thing as schemaless, but it's not. You know, document databases can have a schema with or without enforcement. You could technically also have a schemaless tabular database if you really wanted to. Some of the wide column databases do that. But you know, the key thing with MongoDB is don't mistake it for something that's only to be used for schemaless data. Think about it as using it as, as it being where you want a bit more structure than your relational database allows you. Because by adding more structure, you can literally halve the cost of development. So I guess almost my, my final point on this, for the majority of workloads, I would say that MongoDB uses 50% or less of the compute resource of a relational database. 
And if that's not a money-saving item for you, and remember, nowadays, we don't buy a big server up front and not worry about it. We pay as we go. We pay for the hardware we use by the hour. So you could literally look at halving your costs. But the second part is because it's got this document, this object nature to it, it's actually much easier for a developer to build and achieve things with. And so you cut money on the developer costs as well as cut money on the hardware costs. So document models ultimately just cost less money. That's a bold statement, John, 50%. At least. Can you tell me, yeah, what's the rationale behind 50%? I think it's just an an understanding, a, a lot of years of understanding of how relational databases work. I've uh, all those years ago in MongoDB when I did my interview and I was explaining, you know, the insert the internals of an Oracle transaction block because I'd been working with Oracle and hitting some limits on how many open transactions I could have on a given set of data at a given time. Um, so I'd like to think that I have a, a pretty solid understanding of RDBMS and of document databases and how they work. But the the kitchen logic version of this is that. Document databases just have to do way less work. A join is an expensive thing to do. A transaction is a painful and expensive thing to do, although that's more for, for locking and contention reasons. The, the fact that document databases encourage denormalization, and so again, cut that join capability. So the, the capability is definitely there, and you know, in my experience, it just needs far, far less hardware to achieve more. And I've heard people say, you know, uh, when should I move to a document database? Um, you know, when do I know my problem is big enough that I need the scale that a document database gives me? Which I think is the wrong way of looking at it. Because with the exception of some very extreme use cases, a relational database will scale to pretty much any size problem if you throw enough money and hardware at it. But if you just start from the premise of, for any given problem, I'm going to need half as much hardware if I use MongoDB compared to using RDBMS of your choice. The answer is, when should I move to MongoDB? Uh, Whenever I want to pay less money. That's a great rule of thumb. And I guess if I were to kind of try and restate that. So what you're saying is, in the relational world, you are bound by the, the requirement to create a schema. And you are bound, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it the correct way, to create multiple tables to describe your data. So you'll almost invariably have multiple tables containing, you know, different parts of the the data that you'll manipulate with your application. So customer order, for example, customers are in one table, orders in another, and to fetch that data, you're going to have to do a join. So it's going to be multiple reads. Whereas in MongoDB, I can have a customer order collection where the order is embedded in the customer. That is one document fetch, which gets me the, the two parts of that data, the customer as well as the order. Is that, is that essentially what you're saying in terms of the, the Essentially, savings? yes. Um, one thing you said there was, you know, if you're doing it right, but actually with a relational database, you don't have that choice. Because you don't have a way of embedding one in the other, you can't even you know, do it badly with a relational database and get that benefit. Choosing what to embed inside what is, is, a, you know, is, a, is a design decision is very much coming back to this notion of it's not schemaless. You need to think about your schema. Do you embed the order inside the customer or not? Or do you embed the customer inside the order? Either is possible. 
So, you know, those are, those are some decisions you have to make. But ultimately, yes, when you read or write the database, less work needs to be done. Perfect way to wrap up. John, anything else you'd like to share with the audience? I don't, I, I don't think so. Feel free to plug my blog. Uh, that'd be good. So uh, I'm uh, medium.com slash page against the machine. Awesome. I'll include links there to that, as well as links to the, the article on debunking the myth of schemaless. John, it's been a great discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And thanks once again to John Page. Be sure to remember GVConf. The Game Developers Conference is coming to San Francisco. If you're planning to be there, be sure you add to your calendar a reminder to visit the MongoDB booth. Mention the word podcast to receive a special gift. That's the Game Developers Conference, March 21st through the 25th in San Francisco at the Moscone Center. Hope to see you there.